is definitely one that uh can have the bummer downsides to it uh for good reason but i think the the politics of it is what interests me very much so obviously it's a uh, you know somewhat kind of uh personal just because there's there's diff- many different angles like mm-hmm. my i've mentioned before my dad was adopted and that's because his uh his mom uh well his you know adopting mom and uh his adopting aunt i guess her sister both worked on the manhattan project looking at the map of all the sites i would imagine they worked in the dayton project the one in like mm-hmm. north carolina south carolina border um because they both like lived in Georgia or something. Maybe they worked at no, yeah, they definitely worked on radioactive material because they. So they were were they uh, were they scientists or academic no. scientists or just like no, technician? No. Yeah, they were just like on an assembly line or whatever, and then both died of ravenous cancer. Um, and probably have not related themselves. Not related <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, there was that, and then um, for like Miho's side. Like, you know, um, obviously after the war, when Japan started, she was telling me this last night that, um, Japan started making like nuclear energy to power the country and everything because they needed energy like real bad after the war. Mm -hmm. Um, her mom's dad, so her grandfather like worked on creating those nuclear power plants and then you know, the big earthquake that happened and they shut down all the nuclear power plants is why Miho had to go back to Japan when we traveled there so she could start up the gas turbines to power the country. So I don't know. It's a weird, you know, mesh. Um, yeah, and there's like downstream effects Yes, from like the 1930s of the beginning of understanding fission to Fukushima. And like yes. how that happens and why there's like a level of extreme, even secrecy amongst corporate interest in Japan when it comes to nuclear technology goes back to the bombs being dropped on Japan. <laughs> like, it's yeah. it's not like if they had had a more open source kind of format with their uh, nuclear technology, Fukushima might have been avoidable. But part of the part of the problem that caused that was like this baggage that is from was from 80 years prior that had been lingering over just of all this. We don't talk about this stuff (laughs) type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I'm I don't 
certainly don't feel like the um, completely correct person to be discussing like sentiment um, in Japan because I, you know, didn't grow up there. I've only lived there and um, married into a family that's from Japan. So it's kind of from the outside, though, it you can see that it does like affect people on in a certain way like if they think about it and talk about it um obviously i think universally in japan except for extreme you know hardliners on people who love the emperor still um like the right-wing people that drive around where we lived and tell it you know tell all the (laughs) i think they had like semi trucks that on the side of it they had painted like cut all the heads off of the foreign bugs, <laughs> like meaning me. Yeah. Um. And so and you, all of so the people. So you're just talking about patriots, and, right? Exactly. Um. So them and then people who are probably very hardline, you know, pro America, which you know exists there. Mm-hmm. Um. But everybody else is very solemn about it and very you know, um, understands the gravity of the situation and feels feels terrible about it but i think there's there's some nuance in that feeling between you know feeling bad and like why did this have to happen versus feeling bad and um you know it needed to happen and i don't think that i'm the exact right person obviously for obvious reasons to parse those things out um and say which one's right or wrong or whatever but it is very present if it's discussed at all in Japan. And that's also like <laughs> I mean not it's not on on top of everyone's mind all the time though. Like when I first started working at the business communications company in in Tokyo, um one of the like coworkers, like one of the first days meeting people, um he was like saying that he was from Hiroshima and I was like, "Oh, okay." And they're like, "Oh, do you know Hiroshima?" And I was like, yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know it wasn't (laughs) they were like kind of like oh you've like heard of the town he's from but it's like you know yes of course i have you know so it's kind of a um it's one of those things where it's like it's not the history of the town if that makes sense right 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 well and and even like the um sort of the suppression of information and the the thing that becomes kind of the uh, leading edge of we don't talk about this in Japan is is from an American point of view. Um, when like afterwards, when it's American occupied Japan and MacArthur is like controlling the whole occupied nation, like he is extremely strict on censoring any information into Japan from anywhere else in the world that has to do with any kind of nuclear technology, bomb reports, anything like that. Like there's a period in time where in the Soviet Union, they have direct access to directly translated from the American scientists into Russian, the Smythe report that tells the history of the Manhattan project and how the bombs were formed. And that, you can read that in Stalin's Russia, <laughs> but you cannot read that in MacArthur's Japan. <laughs> like it's not available. You can't be found. Type of thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's very, you know, the whole process of it was very interesting just because it's um it's definitely people controlling these things and I think that's like the big narrative that's been pushed that like people you know, I hear it on the ticket every year this comes up. Um, I also hear horrible pronunciations of Hiroshima. <laughs> <laughs> it is not Hiroshima. It's not just because it's another language doesn't mean it's Spanish. <laughs> so Hiroshima. Um, <laughs> uh, so the the like, you know, repeating the message that like, well, it had to happen because it it was. Um, like they the the military was craven they were going to like kill everybody and all this kind of stuff it's like there there's obviously people like that in the military have you ever heard of the american military yeah <laughs> uh but it's it's you definitely need to parse out the human aspects of it instead of blanketing it with this like well, everybody in the country had this mindset that they were dedicated to the emperor and they were going to die for the emperor and all of this kind of stuff. It's like the the emperor was also dealing with politics himself. Like he he was the head of the military. He wasn't necessarily like it is kind of a figurehead thing where mm. he's he's the head of the military, yeah, but he's not giving orders to all of this stuff. Like it's it's a serum it's like the president is the head of the military yeah um and he had a whole wartime council say, but yeah exactly and only um, one and uh, whatever it was uh i think 14 different members on the council but he he had one guy from the peace party on there just to keep him you know keep it straight so we we have right. one we have one dissenting voice <laughs> from the peace party here to tell us to not go to war <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it is it's very much like um uh, a sticky situation because like the you know if the emperor decided something then everyone was going to follow that like as far as the orders for the war or whatever. But he's not like calling the shots most of the time. Like it's probably more of a rubber stamp once the military advisors reach a conclusion on something. But it's it was not like where people are, you know, averting their eyes because they can't look at him. Like they're sitting in a room at a table discussing things and the emperor very rarely gives a decision because like he knows how much weight there is behind that and it's kind of a like cultural thing too of like how stuff is decided. Mm -hmm. Um so it is very very important to like keep in mind that it was not some um you know populist that was entirely dedicated to this outdated idea of an emperor or whatever it's like you know just wait until the queen dies and see how nuts a modern <laughs> society will go over royalty well yeah and you probably know you know this better than i but I, I, in my reading one of the things that i glanced past was that the, this idea of like a deification of the emperor it's not like this that was some sort of uh like centuries long tradition that had been going on in japan it was like that had just happened with this emperor in the 1930s as a rise of right-wing fascism in the country not like this is the way that it had always been 
I mean, it's difficult, and I don't know exactly like the history of it. Um, certainly not like what you're describing, but deification in a place that is probably at that time much stronger Shinto religion like that is a totally different kind of um deification like mm-hmm. it is not you know and i i don't know the specifics on it but i in christianity if you're going to deify like a king or whatever that means like the one god has come and bestowed power and intelligence or whatever on this one human individual mm-hmm. Whereas in in Shinto, if you're like, yeah, every tree has its own kind of spirit, it's it's a totally different mindset. So that's also the thing that's like kind of complicated to really get a grasp on is there's it is just such a different way of thinking that it there are those kinds of blocks where I feel like the saying there he was like deified or something is kind of like a shorthand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of yeah, I guess I guess the uh, w- the the excerpt that I was reading was talking about how it was in the late 30s that that was the installation of like the first time where so, sort of like uh, you saw in uh, Germany and and other places where there was like all citizens had to like bow when the emperor's car like drove down the street they had to like stop and like line up and all look down at the ground type of thing uh you know more of the more of these uh it's like there were there were now rule more rules of society of the decorum of the way to behave around the emperor whereas that that was like instituted during that reign not like this was this is like the tradition of the people you know i I mean, the emperor of Japan obviously stretches the the concept of an emperor stretches back uh, at least a few hundred years. I get fuzzy on the Japanese history because there's different times that there's different capitals and different, you know, there's like essentially kings or like a sort of there's like a time of history where there's, I think, two technically different emperors of Japan. But there's like one that's kind of the the like. Um, empirical family kind of head in Kyoto and then Tokyo is where like the actual governing emperor is kind of and then they fight each other and stuff and so it's it's very interesting because it's not a, a clear-cut history there's you know you hear of like China how there's like the warring states period or whatever that there's like all these kinds of kings and stuff like that also happened in Japan where the whole country is like fighting against each other mm. for control of regions and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a harmonious empire. Like, you know, we, we imagine empire like the Roman empire or whatever, where everybody would follow this one thing. But I would imagine, um, which, you know, obviously is probably not historically accurate, <laughs> No, no. <laughs> um, but Japan's just a little bit more recent in history and very good at record keeping. So that, mm. <laughs> that helps. Um, but I would imagine that people were like, at least respecting the emperor, not like flipping them off whenever they'd walk oh, by oh, like yeah. the 1800s. Oh, so yeah, definitely. I think it's probably something that's much more um, just in a militarized society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when everything, about. when all societies in the 30s are getting into 
we should have lots more military parades. <laughs> yeah, remember when we used to just try to take over everywhere? And uh, yeah, there was another, th- I saw some footage of one of his military parades where they were like uh, talking about how he reinstated uh, the uh, the samurai class and you had all these like guys who were, I guess, like the... Uh, what would be the equivalent of like the Navy SEALs of the Japanese Navy at the time. But like to march in the parade, they like all put on like authentic ancient samurai uh, armor and stuff to march in their parade rather than wearing like their normal uh, uniforms or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it obviously it invokes that feeling of like, culture and history so you're definitely going to draw on that kind of stuff so i can you know i can obviously see why you would want to do that because i mean the the samurai like garb looks looks pretty pretty right. intense it's, it's it's the it's a it's just a it's sort of a cautionary tale of of any kind of like patriotic movement of how close yeah. it is to fascism of uh you can easily turn any patriotic movement and glorify the things that you think are cool about your country and in a bastardized way to get people all ginned up to do a lot of bad stuff around the world. Like that's kind of the way fascism works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and you can, the way that it works too, is it, it takes that history out of context yeah. completely. Like the, the concept of the samurai, as far as I'm concerned, or, or uh, knowledgeable about was to fight against other like groups of people in Japan. <laughs> it was not like an external fighting force. And, you know, Japan for many, many years had been very powerful militarily because it's, it is difficult to get to like as an Island. Mm-hmm. It is very, um, I mean, I forget the percentage, but like, I think land area wise that, that is actually possible to inhabit because it's such a mountainous country is like maybe 20% of the country or something. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's insanely hard to like get through, even if you got to it and then, you know, you, you consider like the times that people tried to invade, like from China. I mean, the, the term kamikaze means like, you know, wind like of the God or wind of the gods or whatever because when ships from china tried to or it may have been from like kind of korean area tried to invade there was like a massive wind storm that wrecked all the ships off the coast and okay. it happened like multiple times um so that's like the origin of that kind of name and so it's it's geologically a very protected area and because of that they were able to focus on building military power and everything so it's kind of um you know but that's not where samurai were used they were not right like right right getting on ships and and stuff so it was they were they were uh, the you know, they were the honorable that. knights that would engage in honorable combat to to decide disputes between different <laughs> different landowners and things yeah i mean we were talking about this like years ago um but the the way that like samurai holds like have the sword on them it's on there because they're everyone's right-handed so um they have it on their left hip Mm -hmm. and they're pretty sure that's why cars in japan drive on the left side because 
there was like tradition that I don't know how strictly it was followed. It was, I would imagine if somebody had a tummy ache, they were just kind of like, you know what? Not today. But <laughs> if, if like two swords, like in the hilt, uh, hit each other, then it was like, they had to fight each other was kind of the, the, um, rumor myth whatever you'd call it. i don't know how you'd describe it and it if you're one of, if you're one of those times, pesky but. kids that likes to play pranks in your village you're just going around tapping all the samurai swords from behind them with a stick <laughs> yeah. all the time making them fight each yeah, other sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having them pull it out just to be like oh it's a, just a kid <laughs> um and so i think the 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 area to like kind of start just real quick to give well no i won't do that i don't know the where is the best place to start you start us off in the 30s cuz i think that's you okay. know the the rise of the the cultural aspect is interesting but also lends to you know where we are today too <laughs> i'm sure so a quick quick sum up We've talked about this a lot before in other applications. We've talked about Einstein and Niels Bohr and uh, Fermi and, you know, all, all the uh, early physicists around the turn of the century into the 1930s. Um, we, we've talked about, you know, Einstein fleeing Germany, uh, Oppenheimer fleeing Germany, uh, lot, lots of lots of these physicists that are start in Germany that even start working on fission, they like flee because they are, uh, uh, Jewish related or have other reasons to flee the country before the war starts kicking off when Hitler rises to power and things start getting sketch. Um, but the interesting thing is that even as soon as Hitler comes to power in Germany, like there's already been, a publication on the concept of nuclear fission. So it's not like this is some uh, big kept secret that no one's going to find out about that's going to take like the Manhattan Project is the one that figures this out or something. Like this is available information in the physics community, you know, years before the war starts. But there's already talks amongst the scientific community that okay, we can understand that there's downline implications to this. If someone could possibly figure out how to make this reaction double enough times to get it up to being a trillion reactions, it could be big enough to be a weapon. Um, and the last people that we want to know to figure that out right now is Germany. And these conversations are happening in like 1936, 1937 amongst the scientific community, but it's not happening in governments. It's not happening at like the United States government level. It's not happening in the UK. It's not happening at all because there's like, uh, you know, the pop sci version of what atomic energy is. There's been like a world's fair exhibit on the whole, the future of the world will all be powered by atomic energy. And there's like H.G. Uh, Wells books that talk about atomic energy and atomic bombs. But this is all like way sci-fi stuff to anyone who is even aware that it is exists, um, except for the, the hardcore scientific community. And, you know, remember, it's like information is not ubiquitous at this point in time. <laughs> like, most of yeah. the world, a lot of the world is hundreds of years behind 
and knowledge of some other parts of the world. So the idea that we might be the only like five guys in this room that understand the implications of this and we all need to agree in this room as five scientists, like we should probably keep this secret. <laughs> like it's, it's a different world at that point in time where, you know, you could just have a gentleman's agreement amongst, amongst scholars that, you know what, for the good of humanity, we'll just tamp down instead of being like we always are so eager to publish our papers and get notoriety for this stuff. We'll just, uh, we'll just tamp it down a little bit, tamp it down a little bit. So they all kind of come to this agreement, except France. France is like, no, that is not what science is about. Science is about open source information, us sharing it with everybody so we can all work together to, you know, to figure these big questions out. And it's only by these big collaborative efforts that science has ever like pushed, pushed beyond all of its, all of its horizons before. So that's the way that we're going to operate. Well, uh, I think it's 1939 and, uh, Two French scientists uh, who are not part of this p disagree with the silence pact uh, go ahead and publish a paper on fission, which then pisses off all the other scientists who are like, we want to keep this secret because we don't want Germany to have a weapon. And then they're like, well, if France is going to publish a paper, you bet your ass I'm publishing a paper in 30 minutes that says that I found this first. <laughs> <laughs> So, so quickly, the scientific community is much more concerned about who was who was first than the secrecy. Once France is like, "Fuck you guys, I'm publishing," then everyone else is like, "No, no, you don't get to publish and say you figured it out. I figured this shit out." <laughs> so then there's a big battle over that, and then that's what finally gets it to the level of military government awareness. Like the United States and the UK finally go, "Oh wow." This could be like an actual thing. Um, not that anyone who was read in it, on it from a military perspective even thought it was possible. Like, this is just some fucking pencil head nerds talking about, you know, ways to go to outer space and shit. It's probably not going to help us in a war, but we're in a pr we're we're about to get involved in a pretty big war. Um, we should just exhaust all all methodologies you can think of. <clears throat> so there's no such thing in the United States at this time as top secret. There's no such thing as classifications of confidentiality. There's no such thing as uh, you have to ha be a certain level uh, in the government to be have access to certain documentation or whatever. And this is kind of a founding principle of the United States, especially because it's kind of been an, an, an a nation in isolation up to World War One, um, and the whole idea of the United States has been about this freedom of the individual and all this, and so there is it's almost like not even a thing that occurs to a lot of people that we should keep a lot of this stuff secret. We should have like lines of secrecy for confidentiality that prevent other people from knowing some of these secrets. Um, and you also have to remember that America is not a great technological power at this point either. Like America got involved pretty late in world war one. World war one had already been going on a while trenches, gas, chemical weapons, all that has been going on for a while. 
when America gets into World War One, they don't even have a budget for gas masks. <laughs> like they haven't even thought about, oh crap, a war has been going on that's been using nothing but gas. Now we're sending our troops over without gas. Like it wasn't even a thought. Like they had a cavalry. We had a cavalry. <laughs> we had actual people on horseback. <laughs> yeah, my my great grandfather um, was like hit with mustard gas <laughs> when he was in World War One. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was possibly why. <laughs> right. So, so to, to go from where we are now of America, of everything being so overly classified, like stuff that you would, you could find on the internet from simple Google searches are also classified documents at the federal government right now. <laughs> and, and they, and things will be sealed for 50 to a hundred years, even after the programs are done and all that, like that world just did not exist in the, in the 1930s pre-World War II America. That's just not the way that this country was at all in any way, shape or form. <clears throat> so you, the, basically the atomic program is what really builds up this entire, uh, formalization of a regulatory body that maintains classified material and one of the ways that they do it in the beginning was so so at first it's like yeah we're going to keep all this secret and one of the ways we're going to keep it secret is we're going to form a commission and we're going to call it the uranium committee And that's going to be some scientists and some and some political leaders that are going to meet and talk about, you know, all the potentiality of, that we can do with this uranium stuff. So that's that's how top secret it was. They named the committee the uranium committee. <laughs> well, maybe people were like, surely that's a fake name yeah, to hide. This, this is going to throw doing. everybody off. Um, <laughs> that's pretty smart. So that only lasts for a while before everyone's like, wait a second. This is way too obvious. Not secret enough. That's when the Manhattan Project starts. And Manhattan is specifically derived because that's the location where, like, the first meeting of the group takes place. And it's just derived based upon the location. It has no, no, like, special code word meeting or anything like that. It's just one more step a little bit harder to figure out than calling it the Uranium Committee. So the way that they try to maintain secrecy at the beginning is, well, the only way the government has any power to force people to not, you know, blab about shit is if we make them our employee under a military contract and then we can enforce uh, consequences against them if they blab about it. So at the height of the Manhattan Project... Over 75% of all of the scientists in America were working for the federal government. They had a contract with the federal government. That's the way they kept it secret. If you just hire every single scientist and academic in America and put them on the Manhattan Project, then no one's allowed to talk about it. (laughs) That's insane. And And not only that, they compartmentalized the project so fiercely that no two scientists working on the project really has an opportunity to ever talk to each other about the concept or the comprehensive nature of anything they're working on. So you have like chemists working with metal, working on a very specific hyper-focused one little equation. 
and you have a metallurgist working on very one hyper focused specific thing and you have a physicist working on a very specific thing but no one knows how any of that stuff is going to come together no one even knows why one component is going to work with another component and um part of that compartmentalization uh really strains things as far as the development of this because scientists are they get to the point where like look the way that we work is we go into rooms for 20 hours at a time with a bunch of other people and we spitball random shit off of each other until someone has an aha moment and if i'm having to sit here in isolation i'm never going to have that moment so eventually they uh they allow for some intermingling like amongst amongst some of the groups so that they can have some of this creative dialogue and discourse to help put things together and that helps move things forward more forward than they had been but just the the idea it was astonishing to me that the idea of secrecy at the beginning of the manhattan project the best idea was if we just hire everybody then they're all forced into secrecy <laughs> Seven, over 75% of all the scientists in the country. And then, then you have, then you have like the FBI getting involved with all of those scientists because they don't know which ones are like, you know, giving secrets to the Germans or the Russians or anybody. Um, because that's a, that's another big deal that's concerning is that most of the scientists that are working on this project are defectors from, <laughs> from Germany <laughs> coming over here <laughs> to help us. So, you know, they're, they're always getting side-eyed and there's a lot of very, um, very, uh, you know, fishy type of things that go on. Like Oppenheimer, his, uh, girlfriend or fiance, um, the, like the FBI is watching him at one point in time and they like go, he watches her go, him and her go to like dinner one night. And then the next morning, uh, Oppenheimer goes to pay her a visit and uh, she's found dead in her apartment in the bathtub, leaning on pillow, kneeling on pillows with her head in the water. <laughs> huh. And like there's, you know, cons it's tough not to be a conspiracy theorist on some of this stuff because it seems like at this point in time, the FBI was just kind of willy nilly killing anyone who could be a communist or a German sympathizer at this point, <laughs> especially if they were somehow talking to one of the head people of the Manhattan Project. You know, they weren't asking yeah. questions. They were just kind of, you know, keeping America safe. <clears throat> yeah. Oppenheimer is a. So this reminds me, we were watching a show. It's like a travel show in Japan. And they like show different foods in different countries and they're showing McDonald's in Argentina. And um, <laughs> apparently a big popular drink in uh, at least the McDonald's in Argentina, maybe just in Argentina, is called a submarino. And it's like you get hot kind of steamed milk and then they give you a little chocolate submarine to put in oh, cool. and stir it up to make hot chocolate. And I was like, aren't submarines how the Nazis got to Argentina? <laughs> like, why are submarines a big popular thing in Argentina? Uh, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, um, Oppenheimer's, you know, his devotion to the Manhattan Project was, um, 
I don't know. He's he's one of those very interesting people in history that is so dedicated to like science. He's one of those I would imagine kind of dangerous scientists who's just like, well, for the sake of science, we must continue mm-hmm. uh, because once it reached a certain point that, um, like the the, let me, the you know, use of atomic weapons reached that point and they they got to a point where like other scientists like Leo Zillard, who is Hungarian, um, and and had originally had Einstein sign a letter to FDR to warn of German nuclear bombs, which sort of prompted the creation of the Manhattan Project. And Yeah, um, Einstein's role in this whole thing is a little funny. Not to totally that's just a little side thing is like Einstein is a uh, roosevelt's like science boy (laughs) yes (laughs) so like einstein kind of doesn't really care about any of this stuff um but like roosevelt's like well there's only one scientist i can trust (laughs) yeah which i mean i guess he picked a a seemingly good one he was a pacifist um as as much as you could be helping develop the atomic bomb um but they reached a point where like you know, this is skipping ahead, but they had like a target committee. Um, actually, I'll go ahead and kind of discuss that if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Um, so the the target committee that they developed was one where they were like trying to decide, obviously, which targets they should aim for. And um, interestingly, this was back in like 1943 that they started finalizing which nations they're going to use atomic weapons against Mm -hmm. um so this is before the nazis were over and they decided against dropping it on white people because they thought that would kind of play bad for the american public yeah there's all there's there's a big uh racial uh motivation that's going on of specifically dehumanizing the Japanese race in a way that compares them to like rats and uh, cockroaches and other like vermin. And it's a huge publicity campaign in America. And yet, I mean, like the Nazis are viewed almost as like over, like you have to have so much respect for this supreme uh, war machine type of force that's like it's almost it's like uh it's like in one way you're you're viewing like oh man how are we gonna take down megatron and like the other one you're like oh man how are we gonna stomp on this anthill <laughs> like, right yeah <laughs> yeah very much so i mean you can obviously look up like the the political cartoons at the time but like germany is or nazis are depicted as like these you know like king kong size um things on the battlefield Mm. whereas um japan is uh not to put it lightly (laughs) well Um, and 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 conversely the the japanese propaganda against americans was that (laughs) they're a bunch of uh decadent girly men who like to sip uh, champagne cocktails and smoke smoke cigarettes and flip their wrists so they're they're a bunch of weak little uh pussy effeminate effeminate boys who can't fight even if they wanted to <laughs> like, there's, yeah there's a whole other st- stigma that's going the other way <laughs> yeah i mean it, you can imagine like the, the the way that japan was fighting like especially before that and like the russo-japanese war 
um like japan was fighting very strong military forces like the russian empire was huge mm-hmm. yeah even China. though it was kind yeah. of a surprise thing um and so yeah but the way that they were then spread out among the islands and everything it is kind of uh like very difficult <laughs> to to take over an island oh yeah um, i mean that's which that's part of the deal is you got to go through you got to go from pearl harbor and then you have to have four years of island hopping victories by the u.s to take over midway and mariana islands before you even have like a way of reaching japan by a plane to do any bombing <laughs> like it's yeah, not like yeah. a, it's not like oh damn they fucking got us well we're gonna fly from california and get them back like no planes can fly like that at this point yeah in time. um so i think the thing with the target committee that is that is so uh necessary to hear is that whenever they were determining where they should aim and what they should use it against um they came to the conclusion that it was quote it was agreed the psychological factors in the target selection were of great importance two aspects of this are one obtaining the greatest psychological effect against japan and two, making the initial use sufficiently spectacular for the importance of the weapon to be internationally recognized when publicly, uh, when publicity on it is released. Yeah, that so, second point is huge too. Yes, um, the they wanted to make it a spectacle for the world, and the psychology of Japan was. I would not say at a lesser degree, but it was at least tied with the psychology of the world. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted everybody to fear this thing. Um, well, and you also have to put yourself back in the mindset of America's not a superpower. And they've only just kind of stepped into it where they came to the help to help finish the European theater of World War II. And it's only after this that really establishes them, establishes the United States as as any kind of superpower status. But you're also living in a world where in the last like 20 years, you've seen allegiances amongst countries be very strong and then completely splitter, splinter apart. And then those allies now become mortal enemies and go to war with each other <laughs> again. So America's in a position where they're... One, thinking we've got to establish, this is our opportunity to establish uh, superiority over the rest of the world. But two, any like ally thing that we have with the United States or or with uh, the UK or France or Russia, uh, that is only going to last as long as we've noticed all of the allies. <laughs> the allegiances have lasted since 1900. Um, So we've got to figure out how to be so strong that anyone is too scared going forward to not be our ally. (laughs) Like that's, that's the, that's the calculus. And I think the, the other thing to really consider at this point is they, they had developed this, the concept of like strategic bombing, um, throughout these wars and the concept of strategic bombing is the uh, that's the euphemism for (laughs) what you could also call like morale bombing or carpet bombing (laughs) or carpet bombing or terror bombing fire bombing (laughs) right which is terror bombing is the term that the uk used when the germans did it to them but then when 
the UK and the Allies did it to Germany. It was strategic bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the point, the the literal like stated point of it is to destroy the morale of the population while harming the military industry. And by military industry, they mean killing civilians so they can't make weapons. Right. <laughs> so they they would specifically target areas that had military targets, such as like a factory, and they made sure to blow up all the houses that all of the factory workers lived in and in trying to kill um, factory workers and everything. But the after like the the European theater, there was a strategic bombing survey made to see like how effective this was at at changing anything. Um, and they concluded that like, you know, if the German po- the it destroyed morale, of course, of the population. But if the German ha- population had been at liberty to vote themselves out of the war, they would have done so well before the final surrender. But in a determined police state, there is a wide difference between dissatisfaction and expressed optimi- op- opposition. Yeah. So when you have a military um, society, yeah, you can be really upset that they're killing you know, your family and friends with all of this really indiscriminate bombing but what are you going to do walk up to the gestapo and say we should put a stop to this this is crazy (laughs) like that's not how the society is structured at that point so it has no actual effect on the war right and to that point um in japan like there are you know months before this even when roosevelt is still alive there are feelers being put out on unofficial channels by the Japanese, uh, by their the member of the War Council that is the P, the the Peace Party, uh, talking about what if we wanted to surrender, you know, like having these sort of informal like talks, and it's tough to ever to think to have like a revisionist history look back and say, well, if they were having these like. Uh, off official channel talks about what what would it look like if hypothetically we surrendered <laughs> uh did you need to did you need to drop the bombs and I think part of the analysis of that still has to be that it's not like it was the official position of the Japanese war council that they were pursuing a surrender policy and were in open negotiations with the United States and the Soviet Union to to enter a surrender. It was more back channel talks, um, and then may, maybe putting the parameters around what would eventually become the surrender um, that the Japanese sign in September after the bombs are dropped. But it's tough to know if that was ever a thing that was actually on the table before the bombs were dropped. You know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. there there was certainly it certainly was not a unified position amongst the Japanese leadership that we must ignore any attempts to surrender and fight to the death of every civilian on the mainland. Like that's that was not the universal opinion of everyone there. But it also was not enough of a dissenting opinion to enter into the evaluation of what happened leading up to August 
August 6th and 8th and 10th. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to imagine, like, obviously you would think, yeah, you would want to surrender if all of this is happening. There's there's fire bombings everywhere. You know, Tokyo in March was firebombed where it killed at least 100,000 people and left a million more homeless. Yeah. Um, and firebombing was very common uh, in Japan because at at once we had reached to near this point, the year of 1945, um, the U.S. summary report of the Pacific War uh, stated that except for its shore-based kamikaze air force and surface and undersea craft adapted for anti-invasion suicide attack, the Japanese Navy had ceased to exist. Yeah. They they only had planes um, that were really old and used with very fresh pilots. Yeah, they, so that, was, that was the other killed. thing. They had no pilots. They had a bunch of yeah. 14-year-old kids. <laughs> yeah. They their their air force was so decimated and had so few resources that they did kamikaze attacks that only one fifth of them actually hit their targets. Mm-hmm. So it was at that at this point the the war had been in the Pacific contained to the main part of Japan, and you have to know that Okinawa, which is like the main kind of southern island in Japan, um, which is very interesting that it's like. Japanese society is very kind of not not boisterous, I would say, outside of maybe Osaka, where like all the comedians come from, which is on the <laughs> east side. But Okinawa is like a like party <laughs> island. It's yeah, like yeah. very like like fun and jokey and everything. So that's kind of interesting. But Okinawa was, you know, controlled by Japan and then uh they lost that battle, but it was so devastating to both of the allies and japan that like japan had very few battleships left and they were either decommissioned or used as stationary anti-aircraft around the main island and then the u.s lost so many people because japan started conscripting like children to you know just run at the u.s forces like with sticks and stuff like trying to stab them so it was yeah i was watching a training thing um that would have been translated and it was showing how for when they were preparing for the potential U.S. invasion of the mainland Japan, how they were training uh, kids that had like a landmine strapped to their chest and training them so they could know to like hide and then they would go and run, run up and lay underneath a tank when it would come rolling down the street and then detonate the landmine on their chest when the tank was o- over the top of them. Man. Yeah, it's intense. In, but again, you like put it in the context of the U.S. If the U.S. Um, military like we're still fighting how many countries and you know quasi countries um around the world if suddenly the tide started to turn and the u.s was being attacked i mean even you listener listening to this how on board with surrendering to like you know someone else would you be like willing to do if they were rolling down your street yeah yeah, it's it's one of those things or even just like bombing cities in the US. You would reach a point where you would I mean, think about it with like things like school shootings. Like you would reach a point where your brain is so numb to it that you would just be like, 
another one's not going to affect me, like, which Mm -hmm. is terrible. Um, but that's the way your brain like works with those sorts of levels of stress. Yeah. Um, so you have to imagine the, the country of Japan and the people there, like, yeah, you can revisionist history wise, look back and say they should have surrendered and whatever, but surrendering is a very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, Einstein mentioned it, that like the going against like the use of force takes like a part genius and part like a huge part of courage because it's it is so difficult to accept defeat especially when you had been doing quite well before Mm -hmm. um so like jake always tells a story how uh his football team would be down like four touchdowns with 30 seconds left and he's like all right if we just get this one in a two-point conversion then onside (laughs) never surrender um at this point they had reached where they were blockading the country and because of the the navy and the air force in japan were totally decimated the blockade was like stopping the merchant fleet it was destroying imports of coal oil iron and rubber so the the nation was severely suffering at this point yeah from resources um and it was like like the port of hiroshima uh, had stopped operating because of how effective the blockade was. Um, so it's it's one of those things that it reached a point where it was very contained. Um, so were they planning on, like, was the U.S. planning on invading the main island um, to essentially win the war? They um, had two plans for invading, for a ground invasion of the of the island. Um, and it was going to require half a million troops in the south and then another almost 1.5 million troop land invasion at Tokyo. And um, I think that's like, then they're talking about how the that plan goes from the initial ground occupation. Then it's they have it planned very much like after Normandy where it is going to be street by street fighting in every city of the country until you know we've exhausted everybody who's fighting against us type of thing the same thing that happened in both france and germany after the landing on normandy and so the part of the equation there is like you're talking about now this war in the pacific is probably going to go till like 1950 if we invade japan like that's that's gonna let like that is going to be the longest version of how this ends um because once we're in the streets that's when they're not they are already had done the calculus knowing that once we invade it's much more likely that 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 emboldens the population to fight against us house by house than it makes them want to surrender so they had, yeah. that would already been part of their kind of calculus on figuring out how to do this. Now, two, um, after the Trinity test, even then, where they had a huge success, um, the estimate of the the maximum potential possible casualties of of the bomb dropped over a major populated um, civilian center was still only like. 20,000 tops tops 20,000 deaths from from dropping the bomb 
And um, like that's in uh, Oppenheimer's deposition after the fact, like in 1948, when he's being deposed by Congress, he's like, they're asking him like what his moral compunction was. And they're like, everybody, all of our calculations that we had put the very top of the casualty list at 20,000. No one thought, no one thought it was going to be an order of magnitude greater than that. <laughs> like yeah. that was not any on anybody's uh, radar uh, for it. And they, I think, so there's like a few historical things too, but I've also read that the, like they had plans you would obviously have a plan. You have a plan for anything, especially in a war, but it was not like at the point where they were going to do it. Like they had decided before the Trinity test that they were going to invade, uh, like they were against invasion at that point. They were not like ready to go and send those troops over there. They had a plan for it, but it was not one that they were like, we're executing this on August, whatever. Right. Um, and I think it's important too to put in context that in Yalta, the conference in February, before the Nazis surrendered, it was imminent that they were going to be losing. So the, you know, Churchill, uh, FDR, and Stalin all met to talk about how they're going to take over Europe and control the countries and all that Let's kind of stuff. Let's divvy it up, guys. And, um, the the important note from this i think for our episode is that uh the ussr had signed a non-aggression pact with japan um which it's always interesting to me that there's like contracts involved in war uh, right it was just like uh germany and uh, hitler and stalin had a non-aggression pact against each other at the beginning <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Um, and so they they had a non-aggression pact that was not due to expire until 1946. Um, but in 1904-1905, there was a Russo-Japan-Japanese war that occurred, you know, before um, the 1917 revolution. And they, it was like a war between Japan and Russia over these things like islands and different parts of Manchuria. And Russia surprisingly lost that war and had to concede much of the land back over to Japan mm -hmm. uh, that was disputed. And so at Yalta, um, FDR uh, made some concessions to Stalin and was able to get him to agree to violate their non-aggression pact and say, okay, we'll invade Manchuria, um, the Japanese-occupied land, so that Japan will have to fight on another front on mainland Asia and spread their forces even more thin. Um, and because this plan required like a sneak attack from Russia and a quick declaration of war before they invaded and everything, it was they needed those months between February and August that it was decided it would occur and to move their military from Europe across all of Russia to, you know, the Western side and the borders so that it didn't alarm Japan. Right. And this is where stuff starts to get very politically, like, uh, tricky because the, and where the human nature aspect of it comes in. Um, 
because Japan, due to their non-aggression pact, was decimated militarily and thinking, okay, well, the USSR is in negotiations with um, the UK and the US, so they'll be able to help negotiate a peace for us. Right. Um without Japan offering they're going to be Russia they're going to be like our advocate at they'll like say come on guys Japan's pretty cool like i mean we 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 got a non-aggression pact then why don't you guys try that yeah it's <laughs> it's one of those things that um you know you would hope that it would occur obviously if you were in that position but understanding that things are a long shot is um you know that's difficult for people today to do mm-hmm. <laughs> in a lot of circumstances. Like, uh, I'm sure TC probably has plenty of stories of of people who want to like start a podcast so that they can grow an audience of a hundred thousand people listening to them. It's like, <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. Um, too late. You you you, <laughs> you 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 had the idea too late. Yeah, um, and so the. There was like a lot of back and forth, but essentially there's like, you know, an ambassador in Moscow who keeps getting messages from um, people like the prime minister, the Supreme Council in Japan, and even the emperor is sort of relaying these messages saying like, can you check Stalin's temperature on all of this? Like, can you ask him if he's willing to help us? And the USSR, because Stalin wanted to take back all of that land they conceded, just like ignored it and didn't just kept being like, sorry, what did you want from me? Like kept asking for clarifications. Wait, wait, were you um, offering me Manchuria now? Was that what you were saying? Cause unless, right, you, unless right. that's what you're saying, I don't think I can hear you. It's breaking up. <laughs> yeah. It, and so it's, it's like reaching a point where there's a lot of back and forth. That's very complicated. Um, but Japan is putting out the feelers to say like, we're kind of wanting to surrender. Um, like, what what capacity could you help us in that negotiation? And the big dividing point for, like, the negotiations, uh, you came down to three different options. Um, you had, like, Truman, who took over after FDR died, and Truman, in his, like, public statements, said there will be an unconditional surrender from Japan which really comes back to bite him. <laughs> right, and that um, goes back to just Roosevelt. Like, that's been Roosevelt's line going from before, like, earlier in the year and stuff. Like, that's that's Roosevelt's position. Like, uh, yeah. Because I think even uh, at some point, MacArthur, like, presents Roosevelt with uh, maybe some uh, optional guidelines for surrender that MacArthur has drawn up early, uh, before Rose- right before Roosevelt dies. And Roosevelt's comment—it's—it's it's almost exactly the same terms that Japan ends up agreeing to when they do surrender, except uh, they get the—you uh, know—that you—you don't have to—you don't kill the emperor, you know, proviso in there. Yes. So that's that's so the unconditional surrender would mean they have no negotiation power whatsoever. They're totally at the will of the U.S. Um, people like MacArthur wanted to. Like military people were like, uh, we kind of need the emperor alive, so don't execute him, even though he's the head of the military, because we need him to tell people to stop fighting us. Yeah. Like obviously, if if I mean, look at people who are going nuts over Trump. Obviously, it's not to the same degree, <laughs> but 
if you're going to take a nail gun to an FBI office because uh, they took some documents that weren't his to own <laughs> from his house, um, you can imagine what killing the emperor of a nation would do. It is, and uh, and that that is though where Roosevelt's quip about MacArthur wanting to keep the emperor alive was like. Ah, MacArthur, one of the best generals that we've ever had, but maybe one of the worst politicians. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) It's it's very again. It gets to a very stupid point. (laughs) Um, And so, man, killed my father. (laughs) (laughs) The like hardliners and the the. Uh, moderates, I, I guess you could call them, in Japan, like on the Supreme Council um, and in the military and everything, the thing they agreed upon was the emperor gets to stay. And the hardliners had the additional concept, um, uh, concessions that um, and the military gets to stay the way it is and we get to keep all of our land that we have. Um, <laughs> and uh, I forgot a few other ones, but yeah, it was kind of... It was very, it was too much. <laughs> it was the way that I wish uh, the... And we get to keep all the Chinese gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the you're at this division and you reach a point where like people in the US are even telling Truman, this unconditional surrender thing is really hurting us. If you just let them keep the emperor... I think we'll be able to get them to surrender. Like they know they're going to lose, but saying you're going to do whatever you want with the emperor is not going to convince them to give up because that's like obviously a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to places like the um, Potsdam conference mm-hmm. where, uh, which is at the end of July, which um, the Trinity test occurred on July 16th where they, able to demonstrate that they successfully had an atomic bomb that could explode massively um the potsdam conference started on the 17th and went until august 2nd and at this conference um you have many different like discussions going on they finalized the plan for russia to invade while the russian ambassador not at the conference is constantly reaching out to stalin saying can you please um, help us negotiate. And he's saying, what, what? Mm-hmm. And um, Churchill is speaking with Truman and advising against a land invasion. Um, but the important thing to note is because of the Trinity test, Truman decided there were too many concessions made at Yalta. FDR was too much of a left-wing wacko to care about <laughs> Russia. I don't want to have to negotiate with Stalin anymore. So I want to end this war before Russia gets involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that decision is really what sets in motion everything that like comes after that and the, the use of the bombs and the planned use and everything like that. I think it's important to note. I don't know. I, I think we've been going long enough, so maybe we can stop right around the time the bombs drop. Yeah. But the... The thing to note is that Truman um, wanted to use the bombs and had decided that they were going to be used against what they called military targets. But when you 
claim everything in the country is military operations because they're helping the military go along. That's it's very easy to skirt those rules. Um, but one thing I really wanted to drive home is because this is part of the like the you know essentially fabricated uh, telling of why the bombs were dropped is like well. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were such important military targets that they had to drop them there. Well, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been basically untouched from like fire bombings and regular conventional bombings because they were so low on priority for military targets. And actually, Nagasaki had been had been carpet bombed a couple times. Well, like preceding the 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 bombing and everything yeah yeah they they Um, they had already kind of been like taken like nagasaki was like the lowest of the four potential targets because they kind of already taken the piss out of it earlier yeah well it but it's like it's not the it's not where the supreme council of the military is meeting oh no no and nagasaki was knocked down too because of the hills that kind of surround the city would would have like uh protected some of the city from potential destruction so it wouldn't have looked as dramatic as some of yes. the other sites. So that's where we come back to, you know, Oppenheimer saying he wanted it to be spectacular. Um they they chose these areas and then put them on a do not bomb list so that you they wanted to make sure like a do not bomb from conventional bombs. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure that it was as drastic a change as possible. Uh, bef- they wanted that before and after shot. Yes. <laughs> it's it's so like indicative of like the way that the US military thinks that they want to like destroy mentally their enemy is they wanted the entire world to see you saw that whole town it no longer exists. Um and so I so think, so you might have thought that it was like three hundred bombers flying over, all dropping like tons of ordnance, right? No, it's just one little plane, just one plane, just just one 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 munition. That was it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so they their decision to bomb these two places was important, and at the same time, um, I think that was the other thing that at the Potsdam conference. Uh, Truman knew that Japan was trying to surrender. Mm-hmm. Like Stalin had told Churchill and Churchill told Truman that, yeah, they, they had, well, I guess Stalin wasn't there, but um, the USSR has received messages that Japan wants to surrender. Um, they want to just have the emperor maintained, but they're like willing to start negotiating. And because that would drag out the process more, um, Truman wanted to end it. And he wasn't, necessarily in charge of the bombs at this point it was no completely under the military yeah that was the, that's the other thing to know is that truman didn't know anything about like anything that was going on with the manhattan project or anything it's not like he was hanging out like roosevelt's right hand man and they were like uh best buddies sharing all their secrets <laughs> and roosevelt dies after almost four terms in office and uh truman's like wait wait what the fuck's going on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, yeah. What, wait wait what and and every time in all of the correspondence and like the white house telegrams and stuff it's always referred to as like the bomb so it's kind of even dubious to know if truman was even aware there was more than one operational bomb ready to drop on anything like 
he knows that there's the list of targets because he's there in that meeting when they talk about the four potential targets. But when the la- when Nagasaki gets chosen to be the second target, that's just an internal memo between local uh, military bases out on the islands. Like, it's not even like a call from the top, you know? Um, so- well, and it was, I mean, Nagasaki wasn't even supposed to be the target. It, it was wasn't. Kokura. Yeah, and it uh, it was too cloudy. The pilot got lost on the route for Nagasaki, uh, for, for the second bomb. They almost ran out of fuel (laughs) on their on their second like pass to to see if Nagasaki was clear enough to drop because of how cloudy it was. The bombardier says, oh, I just got to just so happened to get the perfect hole through the clouds right over the target. And I press the drop button because if they don't drop, then they're going to have to like drop it over the ocean on their way back to base because they don't have enough fuel to get back to base if they're also carrying the bomb. Um uh, or they could make one more pass to see if the clouds clear off again and drop it then, but then they don't have enough fuel to make it home, so they're just going to have to ditch the plane in the ocean on the way back. Or <laughs> just make it a suicide mission. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, so it is somewhat dubious that the bombardier might have seen a clearing in the clouds over Nagasaki that showed him that he was over target because the thing got dropped like 10 miles north of where it was supposed to be, uh, which ended up making it like drop on a mostly s- the civilian center of the, of the town that was by, by the, by the hillside, not like the urban center of the town. I mean, even the, like the, the thing that they're planning on, like dropping it on these cities, one in that target committee, like long, long ago, um, you know, they were thinking like, well, if we're going for psychology, why don't we choose the old capital, Kyoto? And uh, I think like the Secretary of State was like, no, I went there on vacation. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one of those things where they're not like putting into it all of the the military justification of we need to take out targets so that a land invasion would be useful. There's There was like discussion between, I can't, control F general. I have too many damn generals in this document. Um, but it was, it's like there, there was a, Oh, Groves is like the major hard ass about it, but he's like internal at the top level with Roosevelt and Truman. Of course, MacArthur's the one on the ground. Um, it was, there was, a. Discussion between like two gen- ah, from a conversation between General Hull and Colonel uh, Seaman. So this is after the bombs were dropped, but it was on the thirteenth of August. Um, they they decided like, should we not concentrate on targets that will be of the greatest assistance to an invasion rather than industry, morale, and psychology? So it was known throughout the entire military that they were targeting areas that were again, going to have the most psychological impact. And wouldn't you know it, the bomb that exploded over Hiroshima, um, it was centered directly above a hospital. And there were two elementary schools in the blast radius um, that were totally just, like, vaporized Mm. instantly. Um, The To note that it's, like, the city centers that they were aiming at is extremely important to point out that it's they were not going 
after like just factories or whatever. They're dropping yeah. this thing and trying to show you this one bomb can kill, you know, they said 20,000 civilians, but that's kind of after the fact when the scientists were like, listen, we didn't know it was going to kill 100,000 civilians. We never we dropped it went. on any people before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's important you point out that in Nagasaki, it was like the civilian center. Um, it was estimated they only killed 150 soldiers in Nagasaki yeah. out of the and tw- 12 of which were American POWs because there's a big POW camp there, which was pretty much the only military installation left in Nagasaki at the time. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's um, the the bombs themselves are like such a such a difficult thing to cover because it's so yeah. Not, yeah. Nagasaki pretty much had no military relevance because after they had been conventionally bombed years earlier they uh japan had moved like all kind of military operations or warehouses or any type of development type of stuff completely out of that city um so there was there was a pow camp and we got those pows i think it was like two british guys uh maybe an australian and 12 americans or something um got them yeah so it's you know, I don't know where there's so many different aspects of it. Like at the Potsdam conference, the even the Soviet Union had drafted a thing that they had essentially contained a conditional provision that the emperor could stay. Um, but the U.S. decided, well, we don't want the USSR involved in this negotiation. So take them off of this letter and remove that paragraph. Mm-hmm. And they sent the the declaration or whatever it was called to Tokyo to say you have to unconditionally surrender. Then the USSR is like asking, can you formally invite us to the war so that we can go invade? And the US just ignores it. So there's a big behind the scenes thing that's going on with that too. And this also goes back to the confidentiality of nuclear technology and America trying to be like, is this like a nation secret that we can hold on to and no one else is going to find out about it or what? Um, so before the Trinity test, they've talked to, they already have like a, they know they're going to do the test. The problem with doing a test though, is even if you do it out in New Mexico, um, if this thing works, like people are going to know it happened. Like there's no way you can just detonate one and then no one knows about it if it works. So good news it works bad news you have to kind of disclose that we've been developing this bomb this whole time and no one knew about it you have the the uh the the party of secrecy is over now we have to like have a big coming out party about the bomb if it doesn't work they have like lots of other um press stories already lined up to push to all of the major press outlets in the united states they even have a uh, Manhattan Project newspaper man that specifically just writes a bunch of stories to get ready to send to newspapers so that they can publish them, but they're just a bunch of like uh, subterfuge type stories. Oh, an ammo depot accidentally blew up, or uh, you know, uh, oh, there was a jet, a jet fuel uh, truck caught on fire and exploded. So, like, if if the if the Trinity test had not gotten spectacularly they had all of these depending on how badly it went or how good it went on those stages they had different press releases to explain what was going on to the people and only if it worked perfectly did they have to kind of be like okay yeah there's a bomb (laughs) (laughs) so 
But they knew that even if the Trinity test goes perfect, even if it doesn't go perfectly, that Russia was probably going to know that something had happened. And and Russia had spies in yeah, the Manhattan Project. And, that's, and so then that's the big debate was, even if it doesn't go perfectly, should we go ahead and just do a big pull back the curtain press release to the whole world? Because then that lets everybody know what we got. And we know that either Russia is going to get it immediately from us, or if they worked really hard all by themselves, they'll probably figure it out in three months. So what's the point of keeping the secret if they're going to figure it out in three months anyway? And so part of uh, cutting them out of the deals in July and distancing themselves from negotiating with Stalin is the beginning of the tactics that are going to be used in the Cold War. Like, we already know. We got it. We know they're three months away from it. We need to start separating ourselves from this because we can't be best friends if we both got the bomb. Like that's going to this. We already you're seeing like the the groundwork that will be what sets up the established relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union for the next 40 years happening right there in that conference in July 1945. Um, And it it's not so much that they don't want Russia's help negotiating a surrender. It's more that we need to completely stop talking to this old girlfriend of ours or we're going to it's only going to be bad from here on out because we're going to start blackmailing each other with all the dirty secrets that we have on each other type of thing and i'd love to know what the position on that stuff would have been under fdr because it's oh yeah my my good buddy stalin (laughs) yeah it would um i don't know when was it at yalta whenever the i think it was when like fdr and Stalin and Churchill were sitting around talking about what they should do with the German high command and um you know FDR and Stalin were like let's just chop all their heads off and Churchill got all pissed cuz yeah. he's like no you can't no. do that they're they're great military generals they're very smart <laughs> he's fucking fascist himself um so and that's also like Leo Zillard the Hungarian physicist I had mentioned um they had a bunch of the scientists on the Manhattan Project had written a letter that mm-hmm. uh, never made it to Truman because his Secretary of State was also a bloodthirsty nut. That they should just do like a display in front of the heads of the UN with an explicit threat to Japan, saying like "You need to surrender." Yeah. Um, but they again, um, because this was in the hands of the military. And we don't necessarily think that like Truman gave the order to even drop the first bomb. Definitely right. not the second the, bomb. The military um, had a standing order that the drop was going to happen on August 3rd or after August 3rd. And that was not an order from Truman. Yeah. And there was no awareness of Truman seemingly of, of the second bomb. And that And that's the other thing is... Truman seemingly has no idea that the Manhattan Project has not only come up with one concept for an atomic bomb, but there's actually two totally different concepts. And both these bombs are totally different bombs. They're not just a copy of the same bomb being dropped on the one that got dropped on Hiroshima is the same one they dropped. They're two totally different uh, atomic bomb concepts. Um, 
And because of that, it's like one is already figured out how to more efficiently use the fissile material so you can use less of it to get a bigger bang. Um, and meaning that they've already ramped up production to where they can make three and a half of these bombs per month going forward. They've got, they've got it set up and ready to go. Um, and Truman is not aware of that backlog. He's not aware of a continued bombing campaign plan that as long as we keep churning out these bombs, like they're just going to keep dropping them because the dropping orders for both um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, they are dictated from the men on the ground in the Mariana Islands where the plane is leaving from to go drop the bombs. And it's based upon weather and <laughs> and all of these other factors that are not political or or strategic from the top down. All they know is that we got the green light on August 3rd, and it, once the weather clears up after August 3rd, we're clear to drop. So the weather's really bad, which is why they have to delay the drop on Hiroshima. And then <laughs> the, the weather's going to be bad on August 10th when they're supposed to drop the second bomb. So they push that one up to drop it on Nagasaki. So all that to say is that the other big myth is that U.S. drops the bomb on Hiroshima and then Japan gives the double bird to the U.S. and is like, fuck you guys. That didn't even phase us. We're not surrendering. And so U.S. is like, fuck, now we're going to have to drop another one because they weren't convinced by the first one. There's actually not enough time for all of that to have occurred. Um, after Hiro uh, the bomb drops in Hiroshima, the War Council has to send people from Tokyo to go to even confirm what happened because all they know is that all of a sudden, any radio communication that they had with that entire city is gone. It's just gone. They don't know anything else, and all of they've have experienced thus far is these huge flyovers of 200 to 300 bombers at a time dropping napalm and conventional bombs over their cities. So they also have no like awareness or uh, no military eye in the sky that caught a huge fleet of bombers flying over either. Um, so they have to send their two fission experts because right after the bomb drops, uh, the United States makes a public statement, we just dropped an atomic bomb. One, Japan thinks, okay, this is probably propaganda because no one's really figured this out yet. Like Japan has its own... Um, mini Manhattan project going on where they're researching uh, nuclear fission. But in the entire war, they have only given two scientists about a million dollars um, in U.S. dollars during that time to investigate it. Meanwhile, the, man the entire duration of the Manhattan project, they were spending almost twice that per day during the duration of the Manhattan Project. So J Japan's interest in fission as a weapon versus the United States' interest in fission as a weapon is two totally different ways of approaching this. Yeah. <laughs> but they send their two fission scientists down there and uh, the scientists get there and they're just, they, they are 
completely flabbergasted by the amount of devastation. And they report back to the emperor. They're like, it takes them almost a day to figure out just what's going on because there's so much confusion. They can't even get into the city for like 10 hours because of how much devastation there is around. They can't, all the trains are gone, like nothing. Just trying to investigate it took them almost a day before they were even able to report back to the war council that yes, this was definitely an atomic bomb. We've got radiation everywhere. It's people are burned like piles of bodies. Every building is gone. Uh, you know, this stuff that they can't even imagine. So it's not until that, that next evening that Japan's war council finally is like, okay, we got to get together. Apparently it really was an atomic bomb that same night. They get the declaration of war from the Soviet union that they're going to invade Manchuria. Then that, then an hour later, <laughs> the drop, the bomb gets dropped on Nagasaki. So they haven't even had time to process that an atomic bomb had completely decimated Hiroshima by the time that the second bomb was dropped. Um, and Truman's reaction to the second bomb dropping is almost like, what the fuck? We had another one to, he makes a, presidential statement on august 10th that ends basically saying we're not doing this anymore we're, <laughs> we're done dropping these bombs <laughs> this that was it uh so i hope i hope you guys enjoyed it because august 10th is when truman ordered that any further atomic bombing stop and that was his first like actual authoritarian authoritative declaration as president so it wasn't his authoritative declaration to drop the bombs, but it was under his pen of presidential authority to stop dropping them on August 10th, which that also kind of gives credence to the idea that Truman never even knew that there was more than one. Yeah. And he like stated to his cabinet after stopping them that uh, wiping out another hundred thousand people was too horrible and that he didn't like the idea of killing all those kids, <laughs> which is, you know, um, Great time to have a conscience, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the other thing that I I learned that I don't know how I had missed this, um, but the the demon core that's like popular and you know kind of sci-fi writing mm -hmm. and stuff like that uh, was meant to be the third atomic bomb that they were planning on dropping like within the next month mm -hmm. or I think maybe the beginning of September. Um, I didn't know that it was like that was the third bomb that they were putting together and that they put it together in like a, like a marathon fashion of like 20 hours straight. They built the casing and everything to put it in um, or assembled it or whatever. But I think the, the final point before I guess breaking to talk about, you know, all the post stuff is so many cities in Japan had been bombed to the point of, unrecognizability at this point that the bomb drops really didn't phase the supreme council much because they they were just they were like yeah okay we lost another city um but they had been losing cities from mm -hmm. conventional bombings they're like okay they did it with one bomb versus twenty thousand. like the the concept of a lot of the hardliners was this is this is war like this is what happens they kill people um and 
in a militaristic, you know, um, militaristic society, the death of civilians is, you know, as they definitely portrayed it, is the sacrifice for the country that is needed. Um, the thing that possibly sort of shifted things was, as far as the actual bombs being dropped, is um, the military realized these people are dying without putting up a fight. So it we are kind of losing, the, you know, what they would consider resources. They're not. It's not an running. It's not an honorable. Uh, it's not honorable, and it's not like a way that we're taking out their resources with our resources. Yeah, yeah, you're not wasting bullets by throwing civilians at people. It's just like snap of a finger, and there's no more hundred thousand civilians gone. So you can't use them anymore. Um, and I think it's also important to point out, as I keep saying over and over again, but. Uh, the USSR entering the war is a big player. It gets, you know, downgraded in importance just because the second bomb gets dropped, which also gets overshadowed by Hiroshima, um, which makes sense because Hiroshima is the first one, but still, um, that's, you know, 70,000 people just wiped off uh, the face of the earth. And the, and, and the Hiroshima bomb is kind of the more primitive bomb, like the cooler one to talk about if you want to talk about from like a science aspect of how... <laughs> uh, uh, atomic explosion works like the uh, the other the 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 Nagasaki ones like the cooler bomb <laughs> just from a science standpoint. Um, I'll I'll let you die on that hill. Um, <laughs> just, just just the engine. It was just like a, a smarter engineering. Just smarter engineering went in that one. Right, um, and so the, the the I think the the thing that's very interesting is like. Russia entering the war definitely has has importance because that proved to the Japanese Supreme Council and to the people who had been wanting to su surrender and you know the emperor had been wanting to surrender but he was like willing to let the military people still control this thing it convinced them that the USSR is not going to negotiate on our behalf once they invaded yeah yeah <laughs> so um the the other you know theater like in Europe the, there was like, you know, surveys in the U.S. and in Europe and everything after World War II uh, saying like who helped win the European war. And overwhelmingly in the years after the war, it was the USSR. The U.S. had very little um, cachet among the public, even in the U.S. for winning the war. Mm -hmm. And slowly over time, the propaganda shifted that. And so it's you cannot downplay the importance of the USSR declaring war on japan at that point because they everyone in the world at that time was like yeah the soviets are the ones that beat the germans <laughs> yeah i mean they're the ones who, who got to berlin first they're the ones who got hitler so i think we got to give them credit uh, they were also willing to just throw people <laughs> you know into gunfire so there's a little um but you know so the la last thing I have before we table it for part two next week, um, a lot of the stuff that I my research was for this week is uh, courtesy of the great uh, scientific historian Alex Wellerstein. And uh, he's got a really cool uh, blog, uh, or his personal website has on there this nuke map which is really gr it's really cool where you can uh, go and 
pick any place in the world, like where you live or any city, and you drop a pin, and then you can, you know, set all the functions for uh, the yield of the kilotons of the bomb you want to drop, even if you just want to simulate what it would have been if you dropped uh, uh, Little Boy or Fat Man, you know, on yourself just to see what it is. And it gives you all the radiuses of the fallout versus like the actual burn radius, the fireball radius, heavy blast damage radius. So you can see like, you know, what you would survive. And it also kind of gives you an idea of like how small the the landscape of the cities is in Japan where these bombs were dropped. Because, for example, if you drop like Little Boy on Dallas like the heart of downtown Dallas. It's 15 kiloton bomb is pretty powerful, but still the blast radius of that um, and the, you know, the hardcore thermal radi- radi- radiation burn radius and that stuff is st- still only about two kilometers. And then you have like for the light damage blast radius where just glass is getting blown out of buildings, uh, that's about four kilometers. So if if you were like in Uptown or if you were uh, over on like Mockingbird and 75 when the uh, bomb dropped on the middle of downtown, you'd probably be all right. Um, it's ki- so kind of interesting. But you can also go on that website and see how <laughs> how crazy huge bombs got after, <laughs> after these uh, and how much more... Once you get into the megatons and how like you can actually see global devastation of of bombs now um, as they evolved since since 1945. But it's a fun thing to play with. Yeah, real fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just while you were describing that, uh, did that on uh, over the top of our house. And um, I guess. One of the grocery stores we go to wouldn't be impacted. There you go. See? So, you wouldn't starve. It'd be all right. Yeah. What's the big deal? <laughs> yeah. I would not starve because I would be incinerated. <laughs> well, yeah. So so next week we'll talk about what the big deal is and about how uh, the U.S. was like, what's fallout? Never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Till next time. Bye.